Hey people, welcome to episode 8 of our first season at the Accidental Gods podcast. The place where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. We believe also that we're on the edge of evolutionary change and that this time, our generational era, this change could be one of consciousness, consciously chosen. We believe that our hyper-complex system is on the edge of emergence into something new. And this is what I want to talk about today. I did say that we'd talk about the habits of feeling and why we need them and how we get there. And we will do that. But we are nothing if not flexible. And I had a particularly interesting conversation with Natalie Nahai of the Hive podcast the other day. Do listen to it. Not necessarily my bit of it, but the whole Hive podcast, it's brilliant. So in talking to Natalie, um, we started to think about some of the things about complexity that I would like to talk about now, while it's still alive for me in the moment. So we'll come back to evocation of feeling another day, I promise. And then, as with everything we do at Accidental Gods, I want to look at the underlying science first, so that we have our foundation solid, and then we can look at the ways that we interpret that. So first, we want to look at the difference between complicated and complex systems. And the thing I would say first is that complicated systems are the things that people make. We will see why in a bit. They are simple, they are straightforward, they are predictable, and we like predictability. And the things that are complex is everything else around us. It's ourselves, our organs, our being, our political and economic systems, our weather, our climate, our whole biosphere, every single one of these is complex. So understanding the difference between complicated and complex becomes quite important. So if we look at the bare bones, then by definition we're looking at systems, that is the way things interact. Complicated systems, as we just said, are straightforward and predictable. They interact in predictable linear fashion, which is to say that the input is directly proportional to the output. So a car is a complicated system. A Boeing 747 is an even more complicated system. It's huge. It has a really, really large number of parts. And because Google is my friend on occasion, and I looked it up, a Boeing 747 has over 6 million parts, half of which are fasteners. So it's basically a giant Ikea kit. If somebody gave you those 6 million boxes, all labelled 1 to 6 million in the right order, and a really comprehensive instruction set and all the right Allen keys and spanners and whatever, you could make your own airliner. It might not fly the first time, but if someone who knew what they were doing did it, then it definitely would. There are people taking gas-guzzling flights right across the planet every moment of every day and the night to prove it. So the actions of those airliners are linear. If you pull back the throttle, probably not what you do, don't write in, whatever, it goes faster. If you pull it back harder, it goes faster, faster. If you put on the brakes, it goes slower. If you turn left, it turns left. If you turn right, it turns right. And when you stop asking it to turn, it stops turning. 
and it doesn't start turning faster suddenly without warning in an exponential fashion. Everything is linear. Everything is straightforward. Everything is predictable. If a warning light comes up on the flight console or the dashboard of your car, go to simple things that I understand, then you stop and the appropriate person can interpret that. They can take out the broken part. They can put in a new part and everything will go on exactly as it did before. It is predictable. We like predictable things. Complex systems are not predictable. And we are a complex system. This is an aside from the science. But one of my big bugbears is that cells, organs, people, animals are all complex. But we live in a medical system that treats us as if we were still complicated. We're still ruled by a 19th century Cartesian model that says basically we're all just quite complex clockworks. Actually, we're just Boeing 747s. And if we can narrow ourselves down to the component parts, we can take those parts out, put in a new one, fix it, and everything will be fine. And if you're over the age of about 26, when we tend, as somebody once said to me, to stop healing and start collecting injuries, you know that doesn't apply. There is somebody in your immediate family or your friendship network or possibly even yourself for whom that medical model is not working. And the more it ceases to work, the worse things get. And you can't take out the broken part and fix it and expect everything to go on exactly as it did before or just put new oil in the engine, get rid of the old oil and everything will be fine. That's not how complex systems work. So this is a long and complex way of explaining why I won't be around for periods of time through the next year and a half because I'm going off to learn craniosacral therapy, which is an energetic healing process. It's a complex system of healing that allows the complexity of biological things. Yay! So anyway, back to our science, which says that complex systems are not predictable. They are not clockwork. They are defined by their unpredictability. And they are run by positive and negative feedback loops that are absolutely not linear and not predictable and can lead to absolutely exponential and out of control and unpredictable responses. So parturition, childbirth, is a positive feedback loop. The uterine contractions start and they move the foal or the pup or the kitten or the little person down towards the cervix. And the pressure of that creates the release of more oxytocin that feeds back positively to the uterus and causes it to contract harder and faster, which moves everything down towards the cervix more, which leads to more oxytocin release until, provided everything is working right, you get to childbirth, which is a positive feedback loop that is self-limiting. And not all of them are. So if we take something a bit less charming, if anthropogenic global heating warms up the Arctic to the point where the great big blocks of frozen methane down in the bottom are beginning to sublimate and you're getting gaseous methane boiling off the Arctic, that's 86 times more potent than CO2 as a greenhouse gas, which is exactly what happened this summer. There was a report in the Telegraph of all unlikely places of methane hydrates boiling off the Arctic in the middle of this summer 
it is 86 times more potent than CO2, we are in the middle of a feedback loop and we have no idea where it's going. It will probably self-limit in the end. But we're talking geological timescales and we probably won't be around to see it or to celebrate its happening. And we definitely won't be on a planet that's inhabitable by the time that happens because everything that produces CO2 dying is a part of that becoming self-limiting. Not such a good thing. So back to positive and negative feedback loops. Sorry, people. Positive feedback loop, action A creates action B, which feeds back to create more of action A. Positive feedback, negative feedback, action A creates action B, which feeds back to create less of action A. And then everything slows down. This is how we get homeostasis, which is broadly what keeps everything that's living alive in the systems that happen, from everything from childbirth to prey populations and predator populations, landscapes, ecosystems, were all defined in a complex system of interactions that are unpredictable. Other properties of complex systems, one is self-organisation. So this is when something spontaneously arises out of chaos that was unpredictable before. One of the classic examples of that is when you have a whole colony of ants milling about on what the edge of what to them is a chasm. And then they spontaneously use their own bodies to create a bridge across the chasm. It's remarkable to watch. You can't predict it. You can't see when it's coming. It happens. And then you have a new system that has emerged out of the chaos. And that's one of the other things I really want to look at because emergent properties of complex systems are really one of the things that I think are key to conscious evolution. So back to something we've said before, we looked at Prigogine and what he said about complex systems, that they will increase their complexity up to a threshold beyond which the timeline of the complex system bifurcates and it either collapses into chaos and extinction or it emerges to a new system with new properties that were entirely unpredictable from the state of the previous system. So if you look at a few examples of that, freezing of water is one of the easiest to imagine. When the temperature drops and the average kinetic energy of the molecules fall, then they reach a point where the push-pull forces that have kept them moving in lovely fluidity resolve into a new more solid balance and we get snowflakes or the amazing glass-like structure of ice. And this is what we call a phase shift. So that was from the liquid phase to the solid phase. With the methane in the Arctic, it's from solid to vapour. And this phase shift is increasingly being used as a term for all emergent properties. So like the butterfly emerging from the chrysalis, which is another of my absolutely favourite examples, partly because it's so beautiful, but also it's something we can all get our heads around. We all know what a caterpillar looks like. You can have the, the kind of green slinky ones or the brown fuzzy ones with the black dots that used to be absolutely everywhere on the Isle of Skye when I was a kid. And we know that they munch leaves and they grow big and fat, but only up to a point. Then they stop and they spin themselves a cocoon and they become a chrysalis. And what was a caterpillar turns into something like DNA soup in the middle. And if you were an alien from out beyond Alpha Centauri and you came to Earth and you'd never seen caterpillars before, 
you would not predict the chrysalis and the DNA soup from the caterpillar. I just don't think you would. And what you definitely wouldn't predict is the little imaginal cells that arise in the DNA soup. And in the beginning, they are treated as if they were alien and they're destroyed by the DNA soup. But more arise and more arise and they make little imaginal clumps. And some of them are destroyed as being alien. But then you get more clumps and they clump and they clump and you get little imaginal islands. And then if enough imaginal islands get together, you get a butterfly ready to emerge from the chrysalis. And you definitely wouldn't predict that if you were an alien from out beyond Alpha Centauri. And it's this, it's the unpredictability that is one of the absolute inherent properties of emergence from complex systems, that the end result of the phase shift is totally unpredictable from the perspective of the original system, the phase that started. So that takes me to the last of the examples I'm going to tell you about, which is the emergence of life on our planet. If we leave aside the philosophical problems of the Big Bang that Rupert Sheldrake details with such precision, if you're not familiar with this, go off and listen to the TED Talk that was banned but is still on the internet. I will put that in the show notes. If we fast forward to the point where there's a primordial soup full of single-celled organisms with no nucleus, we call them prokaryotes. They're a bit like bacteria now. They're very simple. That's still more complex than not having life. It takes a long time for a planet that is itself emerging to create these single-celled bacteria-like things, but they're quite simple. And they metabolise carbon dioxide and they give off oxygen as a waste gas. And over millions of years, with quite a lot of primordial soup, because basically the planet is covered in water, you get to the point where there is so much oxygen in the atmosphere that it's becoming toxic. And we're looking at a point where there is a high risk that everything that lives in this primordial soup is going to die of oxygen toxicity. And then the chaos in the system bifurcates and it doesn't head for chaos and extinction. It shifts to a new phase where we suddenly get what we call eukaryotic organisms, which is to say cells which have a nucleus. And we could argue there is a lot of arguing that happens about exactly where these come from. And we won't go into that because this is not the place for that. But eukaryotic organisms metabolize oxygen and they give off carbon dioxide. So you've had a phase shift from one complex system to a whole new, different, unpredictable, complex system. And the problems of the complex system are not the problems of the old system. There is no problem anymore of things dying of oxygen toxicity because the new phase metabolizes oxygen and gives off carbon dioxide and the stage is now set for the evolution of humanity. Yay, here we are as people. So there are the two takeaways from that. Emergent properties of complex systems are a thing and the problems of the first phase before the emergence are not the problems of the second phase. So if we hold that thought, then I want us to look briefly at one of the heroes of complexity thinking, a woman called Dr. 
Donella Meadows, also known as Donna Meadows. She wrote a seminal book called The Limits to Growth, and if you're even remotely interested in economics, please do read that. But here I want to look at her list of the 12 leverage points or places to intervene in a system. This was published first in 1997 by the Sustainability Institute. And this list of 12 is one of the most interesting things that I've come across, and I think it's really useful. So Meadows was asked at one point how best to intervene in a complex system, given that we know about the non-linearity and the unpredictability of it. And she created this list of 12 things, which are the 12 places in the hierarchy of a system at which you can potentially exert leverage. And the least effective, the 12th, the bottom of the list, is changing parameters, tweaking the numbers, so changing the tax rate, changing the subsidies, trying to change the rainfall in a climate system. Any of these are things that you can do, particularly tweaking the tax rate, tweaking the subsidies, not so much changing the rainfall. They get headlines. Politicians do them because they're easy to do. They are the absolutely least effective in actually changing the nature of the system. As we go on up the list, we get things like changing the strength of negative feedback loops, changing the structure of information flows. That's really quite important. I think we are seeing that now with Facebook, with the whole fake news and do we trust legacy media? Our information flows are being changed, and that's quite a substantial way of changing a system. Going on up, we get to the 10th level, which is changing the goals of the system. So that's up at the 10th. In this model, there are only two things better than that. So if we could, for instance, change the goal of our extractive economy from enriching a very, very tiny number of people to actually distributing value equally, then it would be a fairly big change. It would transform the lives of millions of people. But it would still be an extractive economy. To change that, we have to change the mindset or the paradigm out of which the system arises. So that's the second to last of her levers, is changing the paradigm. If we could change the economic paradigm so that it became regenerative rather than extractive, that would be huge. And at the time when I first came across this, when I was doing the Masters in Sustainable Economics down at Schumacher, I thought that was the top of the list. I knew that she had put one above it, but I didn't really get why she had put one above it. But there is one more lever above it, and that is transcending all paradigms. And I read that, and I completely didn't process it. It wasn't until this summer when I spent most of a day driving with a dying Tony Owl from Brecon in Wales to Evesham in England. It's a long story, I will tell you another time. But that drive and the shamanic work that came out of it, let me understand the core of this. It's where we got to in the final step of our fourth step dance towards conscious evolution in Accidental Gods, and we called it letting go, or making the empty-handed leap into the void. And even when I understood this last August, 
It took me a long time to link it to Donna Meadows' levers of change, to understand what a visionary she was, and to grieve again that I never went to listen to her while she was still alive. But we can celebrate now, her vision and her understanding, because this is it. Letting go of all paradigms. Being able to transcend all paradigms is the way that we get to systems change. It's how we stop having the mindset of this system and getting into a space where we can allow whatever we are emerging into to work its way through us, which is absolutely at the core of what Accidental Gods is about. We can't know where we're heading. We don't know where we're heading because the phase shift takes us somewhere unimaginable. But there are always aspects of the chaos that are becoming ripe for the new emergent phase, even if we aren't entirely clear what they are. The ants getting ready to build their bodies into a bridge across the chasm. The imaginal cells arising in the DNA soup of the chrysalis. We need to become those imaginal cells. We're not the butterfly. We don't know what the butterfly is going to look like. But if we can get ourselves so that we are in the right place, being the right people, at the right time, in large enough numbers, then the butterfly will emerge. So we need to do the work in ourselves so that we can move towards phase shift, so that we're not just creating endless variations of the same system, which is what otherwise we are heading towards. We're just going to run circles in the grass, being what we know how to be. So we need to transcend our paradigms, to let go of everything that we believe to be true. And yes, I've said that before, but I'm hoping that this podcast, this one, helps to put it into context so that it makes more sense to you. We can be the levers of change. It just takes quite a lot of mental and emotional and energetic and spiritual flexibility, of resilience on our part. So we're going to talk about resilience sometime soon, possibly even in the next podcast, what it is and how we can cultivate it in ourselves and in our communities. But for now, that's it for this week. Huge thanks to Caro C for the music and for the sound production. Thanks to Faith Tillery for designing the website and for being the other half of Accidental Gods of all that we make. And thanks to you for listening. If you want to know more, if you want to join the membership programme, the website is at accidentalgods.life and we're accidentalgods.life on Facebook and quite soon, probably on Instagram. If you liked us, please do leave five stars and a review on the podcast app of your choice. It helps Google to know that we're here. And more than this, just get the word out to your friends. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell the people you meet at the bus stop. Tell anybody that you think will get it. Anyone who wants to be the change they want to see in the world. Help us to come together to be these clumping imaginal cells that can become imaginal islands that can be the butterfly emerging into a new future. And in the meantime, thank you for being there and we'll see you next week. Bye.